continuing in 1 Corinthians, we've been kind of inching through Paul's teachings on corporate worship. The church gathered to worship the Lord in chapters 10 through 16. That's that whole section's on worship, and that's where we've been kind of cruising and tackling small bits at a time. And two Sundays ago, we actually wrapped up chapter 11, where Paul corrected the Corinthians' carnal views of submission and headship, uh, especially in the gatherings where the men were covering their heads and the women weren't covering their heads. And he also spent, I think, even more time, if not the same amount of time, on the sacraments and namely communion. We know that when they were coming together for communion, it really wasn't the Lord's Supper that they were celebrating. It was more like a pagan supper where people were overeating and excluding others and dividing and getting drunk. It was just a, a real mess, like a Davis High School party from the 80s. I remember those things. They were a disaster. And so he really spends quite a bit of time in chapter 11 correcting the submission issue, correcting the sacraments. And in the next section, we're going to focus on that third worship-related subject, which has to do with service. Like when the church gathers together and the people of God serve one another with their gifts, this is the next worship subject that, that Paul deals with. And I'm calling it scriptural service because they have, really what they're doing is kind of a carnal version of service. They're serving in their flesh, and so he's going to give them a scriptural teaching on what it means to serve one another and how, what the gifts are and how they should be used, and et cetera, et cetera. I think that we're going to need, since this is a, another one of the main worship subjects in this church, we need as much context as I can dig up to understand how the service in this church, especially during the worship gatherings, was carnal and wrong and bad. So by way of introduction, we need to understand some things. And firstly, uh, when we're thinking of spiritual gifts, the ancient prophets had clearly predicted that the church age would be or should be and will be attended by a remarkable effusion of the Holy Spirit. Like the prophets in the Old Testament prophesied that the Holy Spirit is going to do something new and extraordinary, especially with gifting people for service. This was all prophesied in the Old Testament. And I'd say roughly about 800 years before the actual birth of Christ, the prophet Joel, he's called a minor prophet, um, he declared this. This is what would be to come in 800 or so years. And I think it's in your bulletin. It says, and it shall come to pass afterward, and this is God speaking, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men should, uh, shall see visions. Even on the, on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And we read this particular prophecy in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 30. So, this is one example of how the Old Testament prophets said that the Spirit is going to do something new during the church age. When Christ comes, there's going to be uh, spiritual gifts are going to be given. The Holy Spirit's going to be given differently from the, the Old Testament. And so Joel is talking about that. That's to come in 800 years or so. And our Lord himself, before his crucifixion, he promised 
to send the helper, who is the Holy Spirit, to do what? To instruct and to guide his church. John 14, 16 and chapter 16, verse 13. So in the Old Testament, it's prophesied that these things will come to pass. The Spirit will come to give gifts and these sorts of things. God's going to pour out a Spirit. And the Lord says basically the same thing right before his crucifixion. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. And essentially what he's saying is uh, the Holy Spirit is going to come and fulfill the prophecy of Joel and other prophecies in the Old Testament. And so Jesus even talked about this. And then after his resurrection, he talked about it again. He said to his disciples, and these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will, and this is the really weird part that's led a lot of churches in like Kentucky to handle rattlesnakes. Uh, they will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink deadly poison, it will not harm them. That's just okay. They will lay their hands on the sick and the sick will recover. This is Mark 16, 17 to 18. So here's another mysterious text where the Lord himself is saying that upon the arrival of the spirit, like what Joel was talking about, what Jesus was talking about for his death on the cross, some extraordinary things are going to happen through the spirit. And he even identifies them some here. And then again, Immediately before his ascension, before he returns to heaven in glory, Jesus says to his disciples, John baptized with water. He's speaking of John the Baptist. He baptized with water out at the River Jordan. You know that. Many of these guys that he was talking to here at this point were disciples of John the Baptist. He says, John baptized with water. You know what I'm talking about. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now Jesus is literally saying what Joel talked about in the Old Testament, that's going to come to pass in just a few short days. That's Acts 1.5. And then on the day of Pentecost, these prophecies of Joel and these promises of Jesus, they were literally fulfilled. Acts 2. 1 to 4, right? You, you now see the 120 hiding away because they were being persecuted in the upper room and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They see these flaming tongues and then they begin to speak in tongues and then they go out and start to minister and Peter preaches his sermon. 3,000 people are added to the body. The Spirit in, and when we're thinking about the Spirit coming and the spiritual gifts that he's bringing from Joel and Jesus and the fulfillment of that, it's important to understand that these things were not confined to one ethnicity, one class of people. Like the Jewish mindset is that everything that God does is toward us and for us and through us. And it's never been true. God has always planned to pour out a spirit on Gentiles as well. So the, the promises and the spirit and the spiritual gifts were to be extended to every type, Jew and Gentile, male and female, young and old, rich and poor. That's literally what, uh, what the prophet Joel is saying in chapter 2 of his, his minor prophet book. It, that The Spirit is going to come upon a, a great multitude of people from every tribe and tongue and every background and every ethnicity. I like what Charles Hodge said about this text. He says, uh, there was to be or there was a wonderful diversity of these supernatural endowments. Now, under 
understand that's the context. Joel talks about these things. Jesus talks about these things. On Pentecost, they come, and the Spirit is beginning to be poured out on people, and they're receiving these spiritual gifts that were long promised, even by Jesus himself, which was much more shorter promise because they came right after he ascended. But just think about how extraordinary this is. And under circumstances that are so extraordinary, under promises that are so extraordinary, under a display of the power of God, the Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost, with all of that factored in, it was unavoidable that disorders related to this thing would arise. That there would be abuses, that there would be false manifestations, fake manifestations. There would be all kinds of shenanigans following that. And why do I say that? Because if you know anything about the Bible, when God does something, Satan mimics it. And he gives a twisted version of it that's meant to lead people astray, even the elect, if he could get away with it. So whenever God does something good, Satan's always there to do something that looks like it, but isn't it. I think in our last church history study, we learned that when God plants an actual church on a corner, it's, it's a real church. But then Satan plants one on the corner down the street, and it's way bigger and way larger and has a lot more people, but it's something that he has planted. So Satan is always in the business of trying to replicate for the purpose of deception what God does. And if you read the book of Revelation carefully in its seven cycles, you see this over and over and over. In fact, there's a point where we know about the flood of Noah. There's a point where Satan tries to destroy the woman and his people with a flood from his mouth. Now, it's spiritual language, but what are we seeing there? We're seeing an example of how Satan tries to ape or mimic what God does. And so, and that's exactly... The danger is here. You have these extraordinary circumstances that are just waiting for Satan to take a hold of them to try to do something with them that would be deceptive and lead people astray. So many, that the idea is that many disorders would arise. And in the church at Corinth, <laughs> this might be probably one of the first actual Christian churches to... to adopt and take on some of Satan's mimics and begin to live them out. This literally might be the first Christian church to speak in fake tongues. Because that's what that is. That's an aping. That is Satan copying what an actual tongue is. So this particular church, of course, under these extraordinary circumstances, took up many of these disorders, perpetuated many of these disorders. And this church uh, had in it people that were, you know, claiming to be, you know, vessels of the Holy Spirit, right? I'm a vessel of the Holy Spirit, but they were actually deluded imposters. There were some in this church who were just flat out dissatisfied with the spiritual gifts they had received. Like the Holy Spirit, according to Joel and Jesus, came and, and even gave these Christians later on, gave them spiritual gifts. And, but there were men and women in this church that just, they, they didn't want the spiritual gifts they were given. They wanted the spiritual gifts that others had. Well, I, I want to be like the guy in the pulpit. 
I, I don't, I, I want to have the gift of prophecy, which is teaching the word. And I, I, I just have the gift of hospitality. And I feel like that's an inferior gift. Let me tell you something. It's a superior gift in my mind, but I have the gift of hospitality and that's, you know, that's, that's not as showy and that's not as cool as the gift of prophesying or the gift of tongues, which means speaking in languages that you usually don't know, that you've never been trained in. All of a sudden you start busting out, Polyvoufonce, you don't know a lick about French. And so people were, had gifts, and this church had, it just had an, uh, everyone, it was an army of spiritually gifted people, but there were some imposters. There were some that just, I don't want this gift. Like they knew better about their situation than God did. Who's the one who gave the gift? I don't want these gifts. There were others in the church who had become in, inflated, uh, flaunting their extraordinary powers. Um, and so it was all about gaining fame and attention and building up their ego and building up their reputation uh, there were some who insisted, and this is probably the biggest problem of all in the church of Corinth. There were some who insisted on exercising their gifts all at the same time as everybody else, especially during a worship service, which created a very loud circus-like atmosphere. You know, you had like incoherent chaos with everyone trying to speak in these tongues and these things at once. And you would walk in and it was just a lot of noise because everyone was like, I got gifts. I want to use my gifts. Oh, I have, Fred's got gifts. Fred, use your gifts. And, and, and they all also equally thought they all had the gift of tongues and God doesn't give the gift of languages to everyone. But this is the gift that everyone in this church wanted more than anything else. And I think what happened was because God doesn't, didn't and doesn't give it to everyone, and since it's viewed as such a high gift, there were those in there that didn't have it but pretended to have it and then pretended to speak in tongues. And that's where they start copying the chaotic gibberish of the pagan religions around them because that's, that's what was going on at the Temple of Aphrodite and everything else. We'll talk about that more. So in this particular church, you have the abuses of this extraordinary thing that's taken place. It was... Very, very sad. In chapters 12 to 14, Paul corrects these evils by providing the Corinthians and all believers who read the epistle and hear it preached and all that. He provides all of us with a biblical view of the spiritual gifts and how they are to be used. And this morning, we're going to focus on just the very small first portion of Paul's argument for scriptural service and this correction, because that's what we're talking about. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians. We're only going to do chapter 12, verses 1 to 7. I'd planned on going further, but it got long, and we're already there. So, And this will be a classic three-point sermon, but we'll just deal with two points today, and then one, Lord willing, next week I'm going to pray before we get to work. Lord, I pray that you just... I'm already getting fired up. And Lord, I just pray that you would calm me and help me to, to know that these things aren't really against me per se, but against you. And I think that's why it upsets me. But I just, I just want to be, I want to be a real vessel for the Holy Spirit here today and preach in love. 
And uh, I pray that you make your congregation listeners in love and that you help us understand our spiritual gifts and how they're to be used. This is a critical, important thing because our adversary, the devil, loves to mimic what you do. And there are very, very many, and this isn't pretentious or presumptive to say this, there are a great many people who name the name of Christ who are using the imitation today. And we don't want to be those people. We don't want to, it's not that we don't want to be like those people. We don't want to become that kind of people for you that aren't engaging in the truth and engaging in the real spiritual gifts that have an intended purpose. And so we pray for those outside of the church who are un, outside of this particular body that are under a delusion. And we pray that you would help to keep us from coming under this delusion. And we, we pray that all of these things on our side would be done in a spirit of love and charity. And um, we love you and teach us from your word today. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we need to pick up where we, I'm just saying all this because I, I have a strong tendency to get fired up over these subjects. Anyone who knows me knows this. When I read Strange Fire by MacArthur, I lost it. Um, so I, I want to handle this right. But June 4th is the last time we were in this book. We had Dave step in for us last week. He did a phenomenal job, by the way, Dave. I loved it. Thank you for that. And uh, let's look at our first point. We have two today. This is, this is what transpires or what is written next after what we had on the 4th. And the first point is very simple. It's up on the board. First thing we're going to look at is the Trinitarian nature of spiritual gifts. And we see this in the brunt or most of the text. It's in verses 1 to 6. And this is, for me personally, it was a new discovery, which is very exciting for me. Anytime I learn something new from God's word, I'm sure you feel the same way as a brother, right, or anything. You know, when you learn something new from scripture, you're like, hey, this is really, really cool. And you want to go out and tell everyone about it. Just give yourself a buffer period so you can make sure that you're right, right? So um, what I discovered this last week as I was studying is there is a Trinitarian nature of these spiritual gifts that we're going to talk about. The Trinity is involved in them. And I think it's just fascinating. And we'll pick it up at verses 1 and 2 first. And he doesn't really get into that point yet, but he will. He says this like he's moving to a ne the next subject. Now concerning spiritual gifts, right? Before, it was like now concerning communion. Now concerning submission even prior to that. Now he's saying now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers. He says, I do not want you to be uninformed. We already know that when he says that, they are already uninformed. Something wrong is happening, right? He's received a letter from somebody in the church saying there is some crazy stuff going on. So he says, I do not want you to be uninformed. Paul's whole goal with any of his churches was to always have them biblically informed. And he says, I do not want you to be uninformed concerning spiritual gifts. And then he says in verse 2, this is interesting, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Stop there. What a way to start a subject. Remember when you were pagans? Yeah, you're doing it again. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Now concerning that phrase, it shows that Paul was moving from one subject, which was the Lord's Supper, to another subject. What? Namely, spiritual gifts. Back in chapter 11, verse 18, he is saying, in the first place, I am concerned about your unity and the way you practice communion. And now in chapter 12, verse 1, it's like he's saying, now in the second place, I'm concerned about the way you practice your spiritual gifts. 
the way you view them, the way that you exercise them. And this really is, in some ways, kind of a second strike for them if you're a baseball fan. I know Keith is. He's a big Yankees fan back there. But this is kind of like strike two. They're, they're just about out here. And when they gathered for worship, they were obviously abusing scriptural submission. We learned about that, right? The headship thing was completely backwards. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 to 16. They were also abusing uh, the scriptural sacraments, right? 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. And now we read that they are abusing 1 Corinthians. Uh, they're abusing 1 Corinthians. They're abusing that too. They're abusing scriptural service, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 to 1440, that's where this is. So really, this isn't strike two, this is strike three. Not to mention that we still have two more worship-related subjects to deal with. So they're going to end up with like five strikes. And I just thought to myself sarcastically, sarcastically this is a uniquely um, talented group of people to be able to keep getting the things of God wrong one after another. <laughs> that takes a special talent. Usually that special talent is you're dealing with an unbeliever that's in the church acting like sheep, but it's really a goat. No offense, Brenda. But these people have this wonderful talent of just adventures and missing the point on all things. And it's not because they weren't informed. When the church was planted, these things were established for them. So within 18 months... Strike one, strike two, strike three, strike four, strike five. Grace, grace, grace upon grace. And they needed it. Let me tell you something right now. In verse two, Paul, he's reminding them of their past, how they were pagans and led astray to mute idols. Why does he bring up this reminder? Well, I mean, we need a little bit more context to understand his motivation for the reminder. The pagan cults of Greece and Rome were part of what um, are commonly called the mystery religions. How many of you that do not have theological training have ever heard of the mystery religions? How many of you with theological training have heard of <laughs> these? And Cameron is not raising his hand. He needs new theological training. No, he doesn't. He's fine. Mystery religions. This is a, a, it's not even really a theological phrase. It's just a phrase that's used to describe a lots of religions. And these things were prevalent in Paul's day. By Paul's time, the mystery religions had dominated the Near Eastern world for literally thousands of years and indirectly would dominate much of Western culture through the Middle Ages and to some extent even to today. So we have the effect, we have mystery religions even around today in a sense. The mystery religions had had many forms and variations, but they all had kind of a common source. And that common source is something that we're all familiar with, the Tower of Babel. Under the leadership of the proud apostate Nimrod, that was his name. What a name, huh? Because he really was a Nimrod. Under Nimrod, and you're thinking of the Tower of Babel, the people, this is literally what the construction of the Tower of Babel was for, but under his particular apostate leadership, the people, including Nimrod himself, were planning to storm heaven and unify their power and prestige in a great worldwide system of worship. They were, in a sense, erecting a tower that would climb into heaven 
so that they can show how God how actual religion is done. This is the pride behind the Tower of Babel. This is the pride behind the mystery religions. This is the pride behind a guy who was a literal Nimrod. Now, according to, to J. Mac John MacArthur, he says, this was man's first counterfeit religion from which every other false religion in one way or another has sprung. It originates, false religion truly originates at the Tower of Babel. That's the birthplace of all the mystery religions and all false religion. It really is when you stop to think about it. You'd say, well, I think it really started in the garden, you know, in, in Genesis 3 when the people did too there in a sense. But really the Tower of Babel was probably not terribly long after <clears throat> Genesis 3. God's judgment, however, frustrated Nimrod and the people's primary purpose of them trying to make this grand demonstration of humanistic unity and false religion, right? God sees what they're doing and witnesses what they're doing. He knows all things, and he comes down and frustrates it. How? By confusing their language. Why? That they may not understand one another's speech and then also scattering them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth. Genesis 11, 7, and 8. So God says, you're not building a tower of false religion into my abode where I resign. It's not even possible because it's a spiritual place. But you're not, I'm not even going to let you attempt to do such a foolish, ridiculous thing. You're like Lucifer who got booted. You're trying to establish something that's greater than mine. And so he comes down and frustrates them. And none of them, they're all talking to each other, but they can't understand each other. They're all speaking in tongues that they don't know. And then they get frustrated and they give up on the project and they all move out of, out of the area, which is, I think, somewhere around Babylon, where Babylon came to be later. Confuses their language, they move out. But those people that scattered abroad all over the face of the earth they definitely took with them the seeds of false religion and the mystery religions. Uh, they, they, in some regards, became like the true church in Jerusalem when persecution came, and that caused it to splinter and go out and evangelize. When God caused civilization to splinter at the Tower of Babel, what happened was these people went out and began to, and it's all part of his plan, they went out and began to evangelize their mystery religions and false religion, similar to what happened in Jerusalem with true religion. So they go out and they take the seeds of this with them and their descendants and all of that. They're planted throughout all of the world with all sorts of false religions. Now the ideas and forms were altered, adapted, and sometimes made more sophisticated, but the system remained and remains unchanged. And when I say that, we're talking about false religion or the mystery religions. Nimrod's wife, he actually had a wife, Simiramis. Simiramis was her name, something of that effect. She was the, I don't know if you knew this, but she was the high priestess of the Babel religion. She was the founder of all. She is the originator and founder of all mystery religions and all false religions. It starts with her, essentially. Now, after the tower was destroyed and uh, the multiplicity of language developed, she was worshipped as a goddess under Many different names this particular wife was. And she's a real historical figure. She became Ishtar of Syria, Astarte of Phoenicia, Isis of Egypt, Aphrodite of Greece, and Venus of Rome. 
did you people, you people, my people, my beloved family here, think that these were all individual goddesses that were developed? No, they all originate from Nimrod's wife. There's nothing new under the sun. One person has an idea and it's carried on through the generations. So this particular person became the prototype for all these other idolatrous goddesses. Her son, Tammuz, or Tammuz, also came to be, the legend has it, deified under various names and was the consort of Ishtar and god of the underworld. Tazmuz corresponds or corresponded to Baal or Baal in Phoenicia, Osiris in Egypt, Eros in Greek, and Cupid in Rome. So long before you had a Cupid in Rome, you had Tammuz. Tammuz is kind of the founder of all of those other false gods, or he's just another depiction or example of them. And the same thing applies to his mother. Isn't that fascinating? I think it is. If you know the origin of Greco-Roman religion, it goes all the way back to Babel religion. All false religion can be traced back to Babel. And here's where we start getting into why does this matter with our text? Well, these mystery religions that date all the way back to the Tower of Babel, long before Jesus came, long before the Corinthian church was planted later by Paul, long before Paul, these mystery religions featured many strange practices such as ecstasia. That's a Greek word for ecstasy as well as uh, enthusiasmos, which means enthusiasm. That's where we get those words from. Ecstasia was held to be a supernatural, sensuous communion with a deity. Through frenzied, hypnotic, unintelligible tongues and chanting, worshipers experienced semi-conscious, euphoric feelings of oneness with the god or goddess they were aiming those things at. Enthusiasmos involved mantic formulas, divination, revelatory dreams and visions. Is anything going off in your head right now? Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Why, why do I say that? Because the, the, the presence of these things is alive and well today in Christian churches. Babel religion picked up by Corinth long before Modesto ever came about. The city of Corinth was filled with priests, priestesses, religious prostitutes, soothsayers, diviners, all sorts of, of, of men and women serving these mystery religions, and they, they all claim to represent a god or gods, and they all claim to have supernatural powers that proved their claims. And one of the biggest ways they proved their claims was by going, she left on a Honda. Yeah. Unbelievably, some of these dramatic and really bizarre false religious practices, they were absolutely mimicked in this church. Not RHC, in the church at Corinth. It's, it's amazing to me 
that the church in Corinth is established by the Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian to ever live. He gives them sound doctrine, sound uh, polity on how to worship the Lord, a sound view of communion, a sound view of the gifts, a sound view of headship and submission. He gives them everything they need from the word of God. And yet 18 months later, they insist on bringing mystery religious practices into their church. Just like today. Mellow. Mellow. Perhaps the most important and certainly the most obvious was that of pagan ecstasia. It was the highest, in that day, it was the highest expression of religious experience in that day. During a worship service at the Corinthian church on any given Sunday, you would hear congregates feverishly chanting unintelligible speech as an act of worship and to draw them closer to Christ. Meanwhile, right down the street, there were pagans doing the exact same thing in the temple of Aphrodite. Hence the reason why we have this section in this letter. This is why Paul inserted here in the text a reminder. Do you remember when you were pagans led astray to mute idols? Do you remember those days before I came to Corinth and preached the gospel and the Holy Spirit attended the preaching of the gospel and renewed you and regenerated you and made you a new creation, new people? Do you remember those days? Remember when you were this is what he's saying in the text. Remember when you were pagan worshipers chanting, chanting gibberish to mute idols? Remember when you were that? You're now doing it in Christ's church. You're trying to worship Jesus Christ with Tower of Babel worship, with Temple of Aphrodite worship. That's what you're doing. That's what Paul's saying right here, right out of the gate. That's verses 1 and 2. Verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, exclamation point. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Stop there. This has to be, in my estimation... One of the saddest, it is the saddest, I think, the saddest verse in this epistle. It is the saddest verse in 1 Corinthians. Maybe one of the saddest verses in the whole New Testament. Easily in 1 Corinthians, probably easily in the Pauline epistles. This is one of the saddest verses, undoubtedly. Members of the Corinthian church had become so carnal, so absolutely confused about spiritual gifts and worshiping God, serving each other, that when they spoke an actual language during those frenzied chantings, because sometimes as they were shouting the gibberish of the pagans around them, they would blend in some intelligible, regular language like, you know, Greek or something like that. When they would mingle that in, people there heard them. 
they, you could actually hear them blaspheming and saying that Jesus is accursed. And making the situation worse, they were at the exact same time claiming to speak in the spirit of God. Now, there had to be at least one godly, somewhat biblical person in this church that came up to them and said, you're speaking in something that no one can understand, which is you're mimicking the pagans down the street. And when you do it, I heard you slip in there in, in Kone Greek or in Aramaic. You just said that Jesus is accursed. I want to tell you, and this is what Paul is saying, there is no way for someone, it is impossible for someone to be speaking in the actual Holy Spirit and to simultaneously curse Jesus. Because the assumption is, is that when someone is speaking in the Spirit, the Spirit is speaking through them. So why would the Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, curse the second member of the Godhead? It's an impossibility. And these people are claiming it, and there's some there that are going, hold on a second, I'm doing the math, and it just, it... And that's exactly what Paul is saying. No one who speaks in the Spirit, first of all, no one who speaks in the Spirit is going to speak in the spirit of the pagans down the street and uttering gibberish that nobody can discern and understand because it's not an intelligible language. That's never speaking in the Spirit. That's the purpose of of Strange Fire, that book. When someone does that and claims to be speaking in the Spirit, they're actually blaspheming the Spirit because they're attributing something to him that he does not do. So that point is here, but what Paul is literally saying is that there is no way for the Spirit to curse the Godhead. So you cannot be speaking in the Spirit and cursing Jesus at the same time. And it's amazing to me that in the prior text, in the prior section, one of the things that characterized a great many of these people, especially the wealthy who were gobbling everything up, is that they were drunk all the time when they came together for communion. So it is possible for a Christian to drink too much and to start blaspheming. But they're still not speaking in the Spirit. Don't disconnect the drunkenness of the previous text with what we see here. Because when people drink too much, they do all kinds of stupid stuff. Trust me, I know. I used to get bombed when I was a kid. Did all kinds of dumb stuff. Verse 3, Paul is literally rebuking the entire church for allowing such ungodliness and for being so undiscerning about what is spiritual and what is demonic. You people can't even tell what's actually spiritual and what's of Satan. And I think sometimes because there's such emotionalism tied to these practices, these pagan practices, that people get lost in it and they don't have their senses. He is literally saying in verse 3, no one who speaks in the spirit would ever utter such satanic nonsense against their Lord. Never. And then he provides the Corinthians with an example of what speaking in the spirit of God is actually like. You say you're speaking in the spirit of God while cursing God. That's ridiculous and stupid. How could you even think such a thing? Were you drunk? But the person who actually does speak in the spirit, they do not attack Jesus by saying Jesus is accursed. On the contrary, he or she will acknowledge Jesus' lordship by saying Jesus is Lord. That 
sentence affirms the presence, power, and speech of the Holy Spirit. You must understand that the purposes of the Holy Spirit are very many, but his, he does have some primary purposes. Like he's got a, a lot of tasks that he performs, a lot of things that he does, but there are some kind of primary things that kind of stand out from other things that he does, although that sounds weird to say that the Spirit has some other things that aren't so consequential. Everything he does is impactful, important. But there are some primary things that he does, like convict the world of sin, like make the Lord Jesus the Lord Jesus known, like guide the people of God into all truth. John 16, 18, Ephesians 1, 17, John 16, 13. These are real big supernatural tasks that the Holy Spirit does, and he does them perfectly. To make the Lord Jesus known to those who do not know him. And guess what? Those whom the Spirit possesses, they will follow that same pattern. They will be convicted of their sin. They will proclaim Jesus as Lord. They will pursue the truth. So the person who has the Spirit is possessed by the Spirit and speaks as a manifestation of the Spirit, says the very things that the Spirit says. Jesus is Lord. They don't do the opposite of that. That's, what, that's Paul's point. They don't do the opposite of it. J. Mac again, the term Lord is used about 700 times in the New Testament. The Lordship, deity, and sovereignty of Jesus Christ was and is central to the true faith. And such affirmation is the work of the Spirit. What is he saying? That when a person has the Spirit, they do the exact opposite of what some of these Corinthians were doing. They never curse Jesus. They affirm his Lordship. They submit to his Lordship. They... And then conversely, those who are not possessed by the Spirit may or may not openly attack Jesus, but they do refuse to acknowledge and submit to his Lordship, and they do undermine his holiness and authority every chance they get. They live as, quote, sons of disobedience in the passions of their flesh and therefore treat Jesus as if he were accursed. Ephesians 2, 3. So what we have manifesting in this church is thorough pagan behavior. Not only are they speaking in non-languages like the pagans, they're cursing Jesus like pagans do. That's just dastardly. Uh, Paul is obviously filled with the Holy Spirit because um, he handles things quite well. He's handling this quite well because it really gets me going. Verses 4 and 6. And he says this nextly. Is nextly a word? Next. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Here, you now see the Trinitarian nature of the gifts. The Greek word for gifts is charisma. I think maybe we get our word charisma from it. Charisma. And it means gift of grace. Gift of grace. 
It appears about 17 times in the New Testament, 16 of which are connected with God as the giver. In Romans, Paul uses it in reference to the gift of salvation. Uh, chapter 5, verses 15 to 16. Chapter 6, verse 23. He uses it in reference to the blessings of God. God is the giver of his blessings. Chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 11, verse 29. And then he also uses it uh, for divine enablements for ministry. God is the giver of divine enablements for ministry. Chapter 12, verse 6. In 1 Peter, Peter uses it in reference to the gift of the Spirit's power to serve one another. Chapter 4, verse 10. You must understand that spiritual gifts, because that's what we're now talking about, how they come from the whole Godhead. Spiritual gifts are not the same as regular talents. Spiritual gifts aren't talents that you know, we just develop over time or that we're born with. They're a little bit different than that. Natural talents, skills, and abilities, they are most certainly granted by God, just as everything good and worthwhile is a gift from him, right? James 1.17, all the good things come down from the Father of lights. But those things are natural abilities, and they are shared by believer and unbeliever alike. What we're talking about here when we talk about spiritual gifts is we're talking about something supernatural. We're talking about something that unbelievers do not possess, get, and can do. They, it just doesn't happen. An unbeliever can be a highly skilled artist, a highly skilled physician or surgeon, a highly skilled musician. We praise God for that. An atheist can be a talented scientist or a very skilled carpenter, a very talented athlete, a great chef or cook. Great. These are good things. They're not bad things. I like to eat good food. If it's an atheist cooking it, I still praise God, even though he doesn't know that. Maybe next time I'll find out what his background is, and I'll go tell him, praise God for your food, atheist. I wouldn't do that. Spiritual gifts are different from these things. They're not the same. They're not natural. They're supernatural, given by the Holy Spirit only and always to believers, to disciples of Jesus Christ. Without exception, by the way. Spiritual gifts are special capacities bestowed on believers to equip them to minister supernaturally to others, especially to other Christians in your body, in the body of Christ. Now you notice in the text how Paul ties spiritual gifts to the entire Godhead. He says, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit is the active agent in the distribution of this variety of gifts. The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Godhead, right? Think Trinitarian here. Think Trinity. Next, he says, there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. Okay, this was Paul's way of saying that when we use our spiritual gifts to conduct a variety of services, they are performed under and unto the Lordship of Christ. In other words, when we use our gifts to engage in service, who do we do it for? We do it for Christ. We do it for the Lord Jesus. This is why we're called servants of Christ in the Bible, in the New Testament, especially Galatians 1.10. Paul says, if I was still people pleasing, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. We are servants of Christ because the service and gifts that we render and utilize are done for him and for the sake of his bride. 
Who is the Lord Jesus? He is the Son. He is the second person of the Godhead. So you have the Spirit, you have the Son. And then lastly, Paul says there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. He's saying that with all of these spiritual gifts and varieties of service and, and spiritual activities, it's the same God who empowers them all. He's talking about God the Father. In other, in other words, God the Father is the one who empowers our spiritual gifts, empowers our service, empowers our activities. And we know, because we've studied the Bible, that the power he supplies, that he exercises and supplies, is actually not just power, but it's the Holy Spirit who is all-powerful. Right? In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, you will receive power. He's talking about gifts and power. You will receive power. Power when what? When the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the Father planned to send his power to his people so they could utilize their gifts and service and activities. And that power source and supply is the person, the third member and person, Holy Spirit. So God, the Spirit, distributes the spiritual gifts. The service we perform is rendered unto the Son, God the Son, the Lord Jesus. We serve him, and God the Father is the one who empowers our gifts, services, and activities. This is the Trinitarian nature of spiritual gifts. Isn't that cool that you see that in your text? I think typically when we think of spiritual gifts, we do think of the Holy Spirit. Hopefully we do. But now when we think of spiritual gifts and service, we can think of the entire Godhead being involved in this amazing supernatural thing. I like how Mark Taylor put it. He wrote, the different gifts proceed from the one and the same Spirit, Lord God. Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, Father God. And I find this to be extremely fascinating since all three members of the Godhead are also involved in our salvation. God the Father wrought the plan of salvation. He's the one that developed it. It's his plan. God the Son bought the plan of salvation with his own precious blood. And God the Spirit brought the plan of salvation to the world. And now we're learning that all three are involved not only in our salvation, but in our spiritual gifts and service. Salvation is Trinitarian. Gifts and service are Trinitarian. That is just awesome to know this and to learn this even today for you maybe and throughout the week for me. It's phenomenal. And um, I think what Paul was trying to do here in these simple verses is just, he's just trying to transform the Corinthians understanding of what it actually means to be spiritual. You see, they believed that chanting gibberish uh, engaging in many other carnal pagan shenanigans and these things, they thought that that's what it meant to be spiritual because in their culture and in their community, Corinth, that is what it means to be spiritual. A spiritual person chants gibberish that nobody can understand. A spiritual person gets out of control and gets drunk in the spirit, whatever you want to call it, that is spirituality in that pagan culture. And what Paul is doing now is he's trying to teach them that that's not true spirituality. And the first thing he's really saying is that true spirituality is never going to be accompanied by cursing Jesus. <laughs> That's fake, false, demonic spirituality. 
Paul is saying that true spirituality consists of, of you know, not blaspheming Jesus. It consists of using your spirit, Holy Spirit manifested given gifts, glorifying Jesus Christ. It consists of God empowering your gifts in a variety of services and activities. So what he's actually saying is you think that spirituality is acting nuts like the pagan culture around you, when in fact true spirituality is serving Christ, serving one another, praising Christ, adoring him as Lord, depending on the power of God to serve, not serving in your own power. How many of you have tried that? That's so much fun. Really, that's a disastrous week. This is what he's saying. He's teaching them what true spirituality. I think it's so cool that Paul ties actual service Bill serving the Lord by helping me with something that, and I'm giving you an example. Paul says that is real spirituality. That's so cool. Now, of course, what qualifies it is that not just Bill's active service, but he's doing it with the right heart, the right attitude. He's doing it for the Lord Jesus, doing it in the power of God, right? Speaking the way the Holy Spirit would speak through him, blessing Christ, glorifying Christ, so on and so forth. So they thought that speaking gibberish and engaging all kinds of shenanigans was spiritual. Paul saying, no, no, no. True spirituality consists in using your spirit given, Jesus glorifying, God-empowered spiritual gifts and acts of service, varieties of service and activities to one another. That's what true spirituality looks like. In other words, I love you, church. I love you, First Corinthian church. I love you so much, but you're doing the opposite of what spiritual worship is. It's just the truth. You're doing what they do down at the temple of Aphrodite, where it's all about self-service and sexual gratification and strange tongues that nobody can discern and shenanigans, and it's all self-serving. Remember, we just talked, church, about your self-serving supper that you call the Lord's Supper. So you're not getting it right. Let's move to the second point, the purpose of spiritual gifts. And this is short and sweet. Verse 7, we already talked about how it's Trinitarian. And we'll get into those individual gifts in far more detail in the coming texts because that's where he starts breaking down what they are. And you're probably waiting. I can't wait till he talks about tongues. Well, I already have in a way. You've already been equipped enough now to know that there's a lot of false stuff out there. And we'll get, <laughs> believe me, there's almost like a whole chapter on tongues. So that's exciting, huh? I'm going to have to really mellow out and calm down when I get into that chapter because I'm going to be, all, I'm going to be speaking in strange tongues. I'm going to get crazy. Secondly, the purpose of spiritual gifts, verse 7, he says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Uh, the phrase to each is given makes clear that every believer receives at least one spiritual gift from the Holy Spirit. This is important to know because I think there's some Christians out there that don't think that God has gifted them with spiritual gifts and these things. And um, I just don't think it can even be contested that every true believer has the Holy Spirit, and when the Holy Spirit invades, possesses, transforms, makes them a new creation, he brings with him and implants a spiritual gift, at least one. And some people have so many, you're like, wow, that's amazing. That guy has the gift of discernment and prophecy, and you know, or some gal has all these gifts. It's, it's, it's amazing. He gifts all of his people. 
When the Holy Spirit possesses and raises a spiritually dead sinner to new life in Christ, Ephesians 2, 1 to 6, he manifests in them a spiritual gift or gifts. No regenerated person is left out. No believer is excluded ever. When Christ ascended to the right hand of the majesty, what did he do? He gave gifts to men. There's a great reference to the idea of him planning on and distributing through the Spirit spiritual gifts to his people. Hebrews 1, 3, Ephesians 4, 8. B. The phrase manifestation of the Spirit that Paul uses restates what Paul emphasized in verses 4 to 6. It's almost like a quick summary statement. Spiritual gifts are manifestations of the same Spirit. The ministries are performed under the same, unto the same Lord, and the effects are energized by the same God. So he's really kind of just revisiting what he's already said and putting it into a short, compact sentence. The Greek word for manifestation is Phenerosis, and it means to make known, to make evident, to make clear. Um, and, and that is essentially what spiritual gifts do. They make the Holy Spirit known. They make the Holy Spirit clear. They make the Holy Spirit evident in the church and to the world around them. You notice how Paul said he called them manifestations of the Spirit. Every time a believer utilizes or uses their spiritual gift, that is a manifestation of the Spirit's presence in them, but the Spirit is also manifesting himself to anyone who witnesses it. The presence of the Holy Spirit is being shown to those who witness it, whether they can recognize it or not. When the Holy Spirit, and the Bible uses this word, fell upon, when the Holy Spirit, quote, fell upon, unquote, Cornelius and his household, remember Cornelius, I think he was a Roman centurion. When the Holy Spirit came upon Cornelius and his household, what happened? Everyone began to speak in tongues, and that is foreign languages. That's not gibberish. We've already learned that gibberish is not an actual tongue. They began to speak in foreign languages, languages they had never learned, supernaturally speaking languages they did not know or had never learned, and they began to extol God. Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 46. This specific supernatural sign was given by the Spirit to the actual preacher who was in the room. Peter was in the room with Cornelius and his household preaching the gospel. And when these people, when the Spirit came upon these people, they began to speak in languages they did not know. That was a sign to Peter that the Spirit had come and that conversions had taken place. So when we think of tongues, you can think of it as a sign gift. God gave it to certain people as a sign to the one who was witnessing. This is how the Holy Spirit made his presence and power known to the preacher of the gospel. So tongues, in a sense, back then were a type of sign gift. And when they heard, like Peter and his entourage, he had some Messianic Jews with him who were traveling with him. When they heard those Gentiles speaking in languages that these Gentiles did not know, what happened? First of all, they knew that the Spirit had come. They were blown away. But it immediately reminded Peter, who was a firsthand witness, it reminded him of Pentecost. That day before, a few years before, where the Spirit came, and when the Spirit manifested His presence and power in people, they spoke in languages they did not previously know. So right there, Peter says, whoa, what's happening in Cornelius' living room happened at, at, over at the temple, on the temple grounds on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people were saved eventually through that. 
Peter knew that the Holy Spirit was there. Those who were with him knew that the Holy Spirit was there, manifesting his divine presence in Cornelius and the others. Just as the Spirit had done in the 120 who were hiding in the upper room. Acts 1.15, Acts 2.1-4. Peter sees a mini Pentecost explode in Cornelius' house. And his mind is literally blown away. And what does he cry out? Quote, can anyone withhold water for baptizing this pe these people who had received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And then he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, Acts 10, 47 to 48. So tongues were a sign gift given to Cornelius and his household as an expression of the presence and power and converting power of the Holy Spirit to Peter, to the other witnesses, reminding them of Pentecost. Tongues was a sign gift. Gift. And guess what? In this particular instance, this manifestation of the Spirit, the tongues, was also a rebuke and a hard one at this moment. Some of Peter's compadres who had traveled with him were, as it says in Acts 10.5, they were from the circumcised group. Okay, the circumcised group went on to stardom when they became Judaizers. The Judaizers were a group of I think false believers who went around teaching Christians that they had to be circumcised. They had to become Jewish before they could be actual Christians. And so one of the things that's so baffling to me about these texts is why Peter kept associating with them. Why do you keep touring and traveling with these false teachers? And everywhere Peter goes, they're with him. So I, I've never understood that. But he comes to Cornelius' house with them, and they witness all these things as well. And they, of course, went on to become the Judaizers, and they went around imposing sanctions on Gentile believers like circumcision and these sorts of things. Part of the rebuke here, I think, is in Peter saying, these people need to be baptized. And when he said that, maybe some of those early Judaizers are saying, well, they, they haven't been circumcised, and they haven't become Jewish yet. How can they be baptized? Who is to prevent them from being baptized? They have the spirit like we do. So part of it, I feel like, is a rebuke from Peter against them. But in any case... It is a rebuke, because when they saw the uncircumcised non-Jews, these Gentile people, these outsiders, they're outside of the covenant and all this stuff, when these hardcore, supercritical, legalistic Jewish Christians, if you will, saw this manifestation of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to people that should never receive these things, it was the biggest slap in the face to them ever. The Spirit was showing them and everyone present, that a person does not need to become Jewish to be a real Christian, right? They didn't get quickly circumcised before they received the Spirit. So what am I saying? This, and we'll get into this more, this particular gift was a sign gift and a rebuke against those who did not believe that Gentiles could be saved apart from Judaism. You understand? These gifts have a purpose and an intent, they're not just given for the sake of whatever. They have a purpose and they have an intent, especially the tongues. Tongues served as a sign and rebuke to self-righteous legalistic Jews. Notice the purpose, though, of spiritual gifts, according to Paul, at the, verse, at the end of verse 7. Now, I would say everything that I've just said is, is, is tucked away in what he's saying here. But really, he has an express purpose in mind. These manifestations of the spirit, the tongues, and all these other things were given. To not only make salvation and the spirit known and manifested to those who were witnessing, but he says very simply, 
for the common good. There you go. There's the overarching purpose of the spiritual gifts. And the Greek, phra the Greek phrase, or in Greek, the phrase common good means to unify, to bring together. Isn't that interesting when we're dealing with a church here that doesn't have any unity? Paul is saying that spiritual gifts are given to cultivate unity in the body of Christ. It's exactly what he's saying. Is that the only purpose for spiritual gifts? No. But in this text, that is the unifying big purpose. And this fits nicely with what Paul said in Ephesians 4.1, where he described unity as another primary purpose of the Holy Spirit. Like one of the big purposes of the Holy Spirit is to guide the church and convict the world of sin and these things, but it's also to cultivate and produce and maintain unity in the body of Christ. Since unity is one of the big goals of the Holy Spirit, it is logical for the Spirit to give spiritual gifts that will cultivate unity. Amen? Think logically here because the Bible is very logical. If the Spirit's goal is to bring unity, he will gift people to produce it. Okay? That's the point. The gifts are designed to achieve the Holy Spirit's goals, the Godhead's goals. And when we practice our spiritual gifts properly, perpetually, we just keep using them and serving, and that's what we do, that is exactly what they do. They build up the body in holy, mature faith, which results in unity in that body. Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter, verses 20 and 21. Now, juxtaposing ecstatic gibberish is not a manifestation of the spirit, not a true spiritual gift, and does not serve the common good in any way, shape, or form. It is pagan. It is for show. And I, I just want to say this with a lot of sensitivity. Have you ever wondered why there's so much strife and disunity between so many kind-hearted, nice, modern-day charismatic church people? There's so much disunity between them. And they can be a lovely people, undoubtedly. We love them. But there can be so much disunity between those types of people and regular Bible-believing evangelicals. Have you ever wondered why that is? I'm telling you why. It's because modern-day charismatics have adopted ancient pagan practices that normal evangelicals refuse to embrace. They do not, modern, regular evangelicals like me, like you, do not want to associate with what I would call Baliel. Who is Baliel? Well, according to John Milton, whom I'm a fan of, Baliel was the last demon to fall and the vilest, the, the demon of impurity and lies. Have you ever read Paradise Lost? It's phenomenal. But according to Scripture, which is our authority, Baliel is just another name for Satan. 2 Corinthians 6.15. Imitation gifts, like gibberish, are evil and demonic. Pursuing unity with those who practice them is like joining arms with Belial. In the Corinthian church, people were attempting to serve God and each other with these satanic, pagan, carnal imitations. And, and, and I would say this, they were absolutely playing with strange fire, just like Aaron's foolish sons, Nadab and Abihu. Leviticus 10, 1 to 2. You know how that story goes, don't you? You know, those young men were burned to death in an instance by the fire from their own censures. They were young priests who were not following God's 
orders for worship and they were consumed by the fire in the little fire holders for the incense burning. They were burned alive and to death. Point being, God does not take these gifts. God does not take the use of these gifts. God does not take worship lightly. If a person ascribes something to him that doesn't belong, especially if it's demonic, it is well within his purview, well within his power to unleash instant justice. Hence the reason for Paul's strong warnings here. Strange fire, which is a great name for fake tongues and everything else, strange fire can bring sudden death. It did with Nadab and Abihu. It did in a way with Ananias and Sapphira. It wasn't a worship context or service, but they lied to the spirit. They created strange fire through lies. Point being, the Corinthians needed to know and be made aware. This is why I said, I do not want you to be ignorant. They needed to be aware of the dangers of what they were doing. Big time. God is not going to be worshiped with temple worship to Aphrodite. That's an offense to him. It's not happening. He doesn't take his worship lightly. The Corinthians needed to repent, and they needed to do it quickly, and that's why we have this section in the letter. Let's just recap as we close. Number one, spiritual gifts are Trinitarian in nature. The whole Godhead is involved in their development, their deployment, everything. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's it's a Trinitarian, they're Trinitarian gifts. Even the empowerment is by God the Father. So that's the first thing that we learned amidst many other details. And secondly, the purpose of spiritual gifts is for the common good. What really does that mean? The mutual upbuilding of individual believers unto unity in the body of Christ. We use our gifts to build each other up. And as we're all growing and learning and developing, it produces unity as we're all maturing together. Point being, the gifts were never meant to be hidden, never meant to be hoarded, never meant to be replaced by cheap, satanic, self-aggrandizing imitations, never meant to fracture peace, destroy unity, all these things happening in the church of Corinth. Not the intent of spiritual gifts to cause any of this. And real spiritual gifts, according to the Bible, and practiced by Bible-believing people, will do nothing but build up and produce unity. They'll never do these things. So if you see the disunity in these things happening in churches and there's all sorts of disagreement, it's probably because they're practicing imitation gifts. May we, as an exhortation to us, just spend our spiritual gifts on the body of Christ, serving our Lord by serving one another in love, in humility, in gentleness. And when we see great things happening all around us, let's be sure to give praise and glory to the Godhead, right? What did we learn? That the gifts and the services and the things that we render are Trinitarian. So as we serve each other humbly with the gifts, we will see God doing great things. And we need to turn right around and give him credit for it. To God the Spirit for manifesting his presence and power in us and through us, to God the Son, the Lord Jesus, for calling us to serve and providing us with so many opportunities to serve him. And to God the Father for empowering our ministry activities 
empowering our daily lives. I love what Paul said. It's in a different context, but it's still truth for us as we ponder all these things. It's in God that we live and move and have our being. Amen?